Um, and Jay Powell wants to break housing. It is the egg on his face. It is the ultimate egg on his face because he can sit there at the podium all day long and say, oh, look at energy prices and the war in Ukraine. And oh, look at food prices and you can't get fertilizer. And, and woe is me. I didn't, I didn't cause any of this. You never hear him mention housing because he did. He's yeah. the one who fed the speculative fervor in housing. The housing inflation in many ways lays at his door. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with former Fed insider Danielle DiMartino Booth. If you haven't yet watched part one of this discussion with Danielle, in which she contends that the Fed's official policy now may be a controlled demolition of financial asset prices, head over to our channel at youtube.com slash Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment themes we discuss in this video. Here in part two, we also discuss how to position your portfolio for further potential downside in the markets to also be likely accompanied by brief violent rallies as we've seen every other time in history's prior bear markets. Also, we tell you how to watch bonus footage of Danielle explaining what inspired her to transition from Fed Insider to independent vocal Fed critic. So stick around at the end of this video to watch that. All right, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Danielle DiMartino Booth. All right, well, look, let's move on from that topic to another topic that's been near and dear to our hearts recently, which is the housing market. Mm -hmm. um, so a couple quick stats here, um, you know, mortgage rates have been spiking. Um, that's kind of, should be kryptonite to housing prices because of the mathematical inverse relationship between the two. Uh, folks have heard me say this a lot, but the 30-year average fixed mortgage rate has practically doubled since uh, August, right? Um, asking prices are now beginning to drop. Uh, the number of home sellers who dropped their asking prices shot up to a six-month high of 15% during the four-week period ending May 1. This is being reported by Redfin. It's the highest annual gain on record in Redfin's weekly housing data tracked through 2015. Yep. Right. So still early days, but price drops are actually beginning to uh, starting to begin to happen in the housing markets. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously, Danielle, part of this is, um, like I said, mathematical. Right. You know, the Fed's out there trying to increase the cost of capital. Yields have been going up all year. Um, we just expect that that's going to bring housing prices down. Um, you know, I know you talk to a lot of people like Ivy. Um, so what does your crystal ball tell you of what lies ahead for housing here? Well, Demographics is not going to be the great savior. Uh, and since you brought up Ivy, she, you know, they've done that. They, they've done the analysis. The, the growth rate of millennials in their prime home buying years is about 1.2%. At the same point in time, when baby boomers were coming into their prime home buying years, that cohort's growth rate was four and a half percent. So uh, interesting. Just, just net out anything going on in the economy right now in terms of the growth rate of the economy, the underlying demand for homes, it's a quarter of, it, of what it was when baby boomers were coming into their own to their highest earning years and buying homes. But on top of that, you've had this GSE imposition of higher fees to buy second homes. And I was kind of astounded at the simple number, the sheer, when, when you think of simple homes, you think of really wealthy people who are going out and buying vacation homes for cash. Uh-uh, I was apparently very wrong about that. They're going out and taking on a second mortgage because that makes sense, right? I guess it does. But since these GSE 
fees have been imposed on April the 1st, we've seen second home sales crash. Now, at the margin, that's what you always want to be focused at. What has been one of the key drivers in the current housing explosion? Second home sales. Mr. and Mrs., uh, you know, we're, we're going to leave our place in Chicago. We're going to go buy a, a mansion on a lake somewhere, and, and we're just going to live out COVID. We better winterize it while we're there. Oh, now that it's winterized, you know, I really like to live here, but wait, and I've got two homes. So, and my stock portfolio has gone to bleep. And so now it's time to choose which one do I sell? So my point is, because the GSEs have imposed this fee, we've seen literally a crash, look back at Redfin, a crash in second home sales. On top of that, the wealth effect, the reversal of the wealth effect on the stock portfolio was going to have many wealthy Americans looking and saying, which of these two homes do I wanna pay for all the maintenance, property taxes, insurance, everything upkeep on, and mortgage payment, by the way. So I think in a year's time, we could be talking about an oversupply issue, especially if you tack on the fact that we're constructing more single family homes since we have at any time since 1973. Oh, and by the way, the multifamily pipeline is jammed full. Right. And is, so isn't that crazy? It, it's very similar to the jobs market where right now the narrative is way more openings than, than there are applicants to fill mm -hmm. them, right? And you and I have just given a litany of reasons why we think that's going to flip very quickly from a jobs glut into a jobs drought. Housing market's the same thing, right? All we've heard for the past 10 years is not enough inventory. You know, the, 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 there's a, that, that's a fundamental reason for why prices are fair at these crazy you know, rates, because there's just no inventory out there. That I think is also a flawed narrative. And you just made a number of reasons, and I agree that it's not inconceivable that we could have a housing glut not too long from now. No, I mean, we've never seen this type of, a, this violence in, in two metrics, the National Association of Home Builders and buyer traffic. We've never seen monthly deltas like we're seeing. And we've never, in back, back to data, back to 1999, we've never seen two back-to-back -back months in National Association of Realtors existing home inventory data with this big of a buildup over a period of two months. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, everything that you just mentioned, you didn't even mention recession in there, right? Like if we if we go into recession where there's lots of layoffs, I mean, that completely compounds the situation, worsens the situation even further, yeah. right? But but you don't need the recession to have, you know, the, the issue that you're forecasting here. Um, uh, gosh. Okay. So- um, And Jay Powell wants to break housing. It is the egg on his face. It is the ultimate egg on his face because he can sit there at the podium all day long and say, oh, look at energy prices and the war in Ukraine and oh, look at food prices and you can't get fertilizer. And, and what was me? I didn't I didn't cause any of this. You never hear him mention housing because he did. He's yeah. the one who fed the speculative fervor in housing. The housing inflation in many ways lays at his door. Would all of these private equity investors who make up a third of the market right now as investors with all cash, would they be as flush as they are had interest rates not been at the zero bound as they no, have? No, absolutely. And, it, and it's been so when I've had Ivy on, I've talked with her about the dramatic increase in investors buying in the residential market. And as you said, the fastest growing cohort of those investors, still a lot of mom and pops out there, but have been these institutional buyers, right? And it's just, it's no competition, right? You know, when we hear all these these all cash offers that come in way above asking, you know, these guys can can make those bids because they're flush with super cheap capital that no regular, per, yeah, no regular person can compete with no. the rates that they're getting, right? So- and this, is, uh, and this is why I say, you know, when there are pitchforks one day, I mean, 
they're going to figure out that, that, that the that the GPs walked away with every last penny and the LPs were the ones who were left out in the cold. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Namely, that, namely my mom's pension, you know, it, it's going to be one of those things where they're like, what do you, what do you mean two years ago, CalPERS couldn't, couldn't quantify the fees that they were paying to private equity. Right. And they and, got and away I, with it. <laughs> I, I didn't want to wade into pensions just because it's such a big topic. It's not fair to just sort of give an offhand comment about it, but I'll connect one other dot there, which is, you know, regular people got screwed because housing prices got driven up to unaffordable levels. Um, these guys who were getting super cheap debt enabled by the Fed, um, you know, they they got great returns. To your point, they're they're now sort of slinking out the back door with all the money, letting, you know, the pension funds and whatnot be the ones to have to deal with the aftermath. Now, when that pension fund has to, then you're going to have the pension fund need to be bailed out. And <clears throat> I was just talking about this the other day. Um, you know, I see a social schism growing uh, and I'm not trying to make a judgment call whether it's good or it's bad. I just I just see this friction coming, which is if you have a pension right now, <clears throat> it's like having millions of dollars in the bank, right, that are that are paying you, you know, a dependable income for the rest of your retirement. Right. A ton of people out there who don't have a pension, right, who, who worked hard, saved hard, um, even if you saved, you did great. You saved a couple million dollars up with yields today. You're not getting anything off of that. And then, of course, the markets are correcting. So you're losing you know, a fair amount of what you saved up right now. And to have the insult of then having to have your taxes increase to bail out somebody's pension when you don't have one, it's going to pit neighbor against neighbor, those with pensions, those without. I see you nodding as I'm saying this, but it's just such a well, it's only because cluster, it's only you know because what? I pitched this as a book two years ago to my to my publisher Penguin Random House as a as a sequel to Fed Up. I, I pitched um, neighbor against neighbor as a as a theme because of when pensions blow up and other people are made to pay their taxes. I actually wrote a whole write up on it, and if I had the time to write a book, I would. But that's I knew um, I liked you, Daniel. <laughs> it's it's a thing, and it's going to be a thing, especially as we see murder on the subway and. I don't, I don't say that lightly, but especially as you see this impetus to continue hollowing out Illinois and the coasts where there's no rule of law. And so you're going to have more and more and more of the U.S. population moving to where they feel safe and where they feel like they don't, they don't get gouged for, for taxes. But at some point, it's going to become a federal issue. Well, and that then opens up the door and we, we don't have time to get in all this, especially because I have a couple other key questions to ask you. But then, you know, do you start having like state bailouts? That's right? what I'm talking about. Yeah. And what did what, Pat what, what Toomey middle actually America, instituted what, the legislation to begin with? Because he didn't want for a Democratic run Congress to do a blue state backdoor bailout using one of the Fed's municipal bond facilities. He didn't care about high yield and LQD at the time. He didn't care about high yield and high grade. That was just a bonus but he still turned all the credit facilities off at the same time because he didn't want a blue state backdoor bailout. Yeah, well- Too much information, um, I know. I'm I know, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure, you know, that's still not gonna thwart them from trying their hardest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, well, look, um, so many questions, but but let me let me zero in here and I'll try to land the plane here because I know you, you got to get on sure. the plane relatively soon. Um, let's just get to the, the market outlook. So, you know, we got a lot of people watching who are trying to navigate, you know, these markets. It's now been a rocky year. The outlook looks, you know, murky. I'll be, you know, kind at, at this point. Um, what do you see is more likely to happen from here? 
Um, you know, do you, do, you, do you see the uncertainty, the volatility, maybe even the downward trend continuing in the general markets, or do you see something different? So, um, A, we're not even, if you're talking about the broad averages, we're not even at the average decline in a recession. And we have to bear in mind the backdrop, and that is consumers are still consuming. Credit card debt's going through the roof right now. Yeah. The stimmy life, lifestyle, Americans don't want to give it up anytime soon. People haven't downshifted. They're just shifting the financing of it from the checks now to the credit card companies. Exactly. So if we saw a negative print in Q1, and if we're in the middle of an industrial recession and Q2 should be an earnings recession as well, then what's to say that what we're experiencing is not going to be longer and more drawn out than what we're expecting going into a midterm? I just don't see it's feasible that you can say with any certainty, as malleable as he is, and everybody on my Twitter feed says it all the time, he'll pivot, he'll pivot, he'll pivot, he'll, I'm not so sure. I'm just not so sure. And even if he does, he can't go at it alone. We saw this in the post-pandemic world. You require right now to bail out the markets if they decide to throw up. And by the way, what we've seen so far is nothing. But if markets decide to truly get upset, you need a combination in equal forces of fiscal and monetary stimulus. And we ain't getting that before February. Not happening. So no, I don't see that there's any, we can have technical rallies, we can have passive fund flows that, that create earth-shattering rallies on any given day. But in the end, I think the fundamental narrative is too strong and we're not there yet. We're not technically quite in recession yet for us to be able to say, all clear with the stock market. All right, great. And that that's very um, complimentary to a lot of the recent guests I've had on this program where we've kind of gone deep into market dynamics. Um, you know, many of them saying, uh, we're nowhere close to a bear market at this point, even though technically the S&P you know, briefly dipped below the 20% level on Friday, uh, last Friday. Um, but just sentiment alone, right? There's still so many people who are lined up to kind of, you know, buy in, you know, is, oh, is this the, the, the you know, the next, the, where the next bounce comes and I can ride up the next wave here. You know, in a real, in a real corporate insiders have been buying their stock back. They yeah. think Owl's coming to the rescue. Right, right, right. And in a real bear market, nobody wants to touch a stock ever again, right? It breaks your faith. It breaks your confidence. We're just still nowhere close to that yet. Nope. <clears throat> All right. So um, given that outlook, are there any asset classes that you either like in particular or dislike in particular right now? I'm going to, I'm going to guess you like cash right now, given uh, some of the uncertainty. Boring, but true. Uh, and I did mention, you know, I have mentioned gold. I, what I don't like uh, are industrial metals right now at all. So, so copper, zinc, all that stuff. Iron ore, you can always not like that stuff because I don't think that China's coming to the rescue like they did in 2015 and 2016. Yep. So be careful of any commodity super cycle narratives. That just means that we're Joe Q, huge investment bank that's built up our commodity trading operation. So we want to keep that narrative going. So be careful there. Um, and by the same token, again, I'll, I'll reiterate, look, I'm, I'm not old enough to be saying it, but municipal bonds have had the you-know-what kicked out of them. And I think that if you can find opportunities there, that would be money good. And other than that, you better be staying, staying short. 
and be careful of energy as well, because everything that, you know, every pendulum always swings back the other way. So be careful because right now there's no demand destruction being reflected in energy prices. Right. Right. And, and I, I, I love energy as a long-term play. Mm-hmm. Um, but Danielle's exactly right. You know, first off, when you have these massive moves in any asset class, but, but commodities, particularly, um, you know, they tend to they tend to have violent uh, corrections, and that's for a variety of reasons. One, they they just get overvalued, right, and that has to correct. Two, it's kind of like farming in the sense that if you have a crop one year that everybody likes and they bid the price up for, well, every farmer plants that next year, right? So mm-hmm. when the price goes up, you encourage a lot of exploration and development and whatnot, and it takes a while to come online in uh, in energy. Uh, so I'm not trying to you know say they're just going to invent a whole bunch of oil wells in the next couple of months. Um, but uh, with all the demand destruction in the recession, you know, outlook that Danielle and I have been talking about, that does mean the economy will use less energy going forward. So, you know, I, 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 I like energy a lot, but I think Danielle is giving a very realistic point, which is don't bet the farm on it right now because there may be, you know, a near nearer term price correction. Um, all right. So, um, uh, just talking about munis for a second, because uh, I know you have liked them. Um, in the past, um, the yeah, beginning of this been, year has I mean, been thank bad. God I, I'm a buy and hold when it comes to munis, and I only own individual bonds because it's not been fun. But I've just sit, been sitting back watching, just yep. clipping well, the coupons. And, and so th- this, this has been been a bad year for all bonds. So you know, munis aren't 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 uh, you know, it, it's not just munis. Um, <clears throat> my, my, I just want to underscore you, you for you. It's it's specific kinds of munis, right? I mean, you're saying go find kind of like the the, the A grade you know, municipalities out there, um, don't just throw a dart and pick any muni here. No, I mean, there are, there are fabulous reports. They tend to be annual reports, but there are fabulous reports that walk you through which states have the lowest exposure to alternatives, which states run their, you know, run their pensions the most conservatively, which states, uh, you know, don't necessarily issue bonds to cover up pension underfunding. There are plenty of them out there where there are rational people running the show, whether it be a state or, or municipality. So there, there are places to pick and choose. Find, ask around, you know, ask around in the financial community. There, there are great uh, managers who just specialize in municipal bonds. All right. And, and one of the main reasons I asked that is, as you know, Danielle, you know, Wealthion has recommended financial advisors that they connect people with to help them kind of navigate all of this. I think sort of finding a good muni bond is something where a good experienced financial advisor can be a really helpful guide, right? And those guys, they're going to come on in just a few seconds after we're done here, Danielle, but I I wanted just to plant that seed in folks' brain. Um, All right. So as we begin to wrap things up here, Danielle, um, uh, two quick things. Um, First off, for folks that have really enjoyed this conversation, they want to learn more about you and your work. They want to follow you. Where should they go? Come on to, you know what, come to my Twitter homepage right now, come to where my pinned tweet is right now, because we're, we're, we've just launched an anniversary promotion and this is shameless on my part, but you get the first three months of the daily feather for half price and you'll never, ever go back to anybody else's research. I will toot my horn. It is the best. And, but we're in the middle of an anniversary. It is the best. It is the best. It is. Um, and our QI pro is even better, but come to my Twitter feed because I've got a twin Pete, uh, a pinned tweet that that'll take you exactly to where uh, that promotion is. And if you don't follow me on Twitter, then you clearly need to get out more um, or follow me on Twitter and then you can stay in. Okay, great. Well, Danielle, when we edit this, we will put up 
that your Twitter handle here on the screen so folks know exactly where to go. Um, all right, folks, um, stick around uh, at the end of this video. Um, I, I'm going to ask, uh, Danielle ask, answers a bonus question for me. Just go to wealthion.com DMB. And uh, I'll, I'll just give that out there as a teaser, but you're really going to enjoy it. All right, Danielle, thanks so much for coming on. Can't wait to have you back on again the program soon. Thanks so much for your time. time. Thank you. Well, all right. Now's the time on the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the financial advisors endorsed by Wealthion. Uh, we're going to react to what Danielle said. Uh, they're also going to talk about uh, a bit about what the markets uh, have been doing since they were on last week. Uh, Mike and John, great to see you guys again. Uh, John, why don't we start with you? Hey, uh, just a heck of a barn burner of an interview with Danielle. I'd love to get your reaction to it, but specifically to her point that the Fed policy may have shifted now into what she called a controlled demolition of financial asset prices. Um, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, thanks, Adam, for having us again. Um, always love hearing what Danielle has to say. Uh, what a fascinating perspective she has, uh, especially given, as, as you put it, and she, uh, she acknowledged was a fitting uh, description, you know, served her time at the, the Dallas Fed, and she spoke very highly of at least her experience there, especially working under uh, Richard Fisher, but uh, also, and, and through her book, uh, Fed Up, I think is the name of the book, right? Um, uh, yes. Fed Up, yes. I, I was wondering if I got the title wrong there, but uh, she gives a, a, a portal to the uh, interesting um, politics, if, 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 if you want to use a kind word, inside the, that institution, that where they essentially knew they got it wrong, found a, a, an answer to how they got it wrong with the, with their inflation measures yet still decided not to you know adhere to those and and here we are um but yeah the controlled burn concept i think it's uh, really really fascinating in that i think it's a way of saying that um they've got to kind of talk outside of both sides of their mouths she 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 um um raises the notion or the, the, the possibility and, and, and uh, you know, Governor Bostic, you know, uh, floated the trial balloon about, hey, maybe we can pause uh, rate increases come come September timeframe or something like that. And she she said, well, you know, what what if if, you know, maybe they do that because they're starting to get some nervousness in markets and, and politics and stuff like that, but they continue uh, without abatement, the, the and when I say they, I'm talking about the Federal Reserve and central banks, the quantitative tightening, the runoff of their balance sheet that is scheduled to start and ramp up between now and Labor Day. And she said it's entirely conceivable, maybe even likely that even if they pause interest rate uh, uh, increases, uh, some showing of dovishness, they may still keep the foot on the pedal in terms of the quantitative tightening and, and balance sheet runoff. And that, she says, uh, is, is where... Um, you may see some some real stresses start to percolate up in some of the illiquid securities like junk bonds and you know shadow shadow banking shadow financial um, institutions because up till now they've been a fairly um, you look at high yields they they haven't sold off really as much as the outflows as she pointed out uh, in in that category would have suggested still pretty orderly indicative of of maybe you know some selective selling of some of the higher quality stuff even within the junk universe and really the real toxic stuff hasn't had to been tested yet and and you know that that she raises as as one way the fed can kind of try to still tr be true to its 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 need and mandate to to keep inflation somewhat in check um but no also knowing that that doing so could could uh could really cause a tizzy in markets 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and of course, yeah, her, her, as we talked, she and I talked that the, the issue that just sort of corporate America is facing here is that the cost of capital is going up, right? The cost of debt's going up. Um, but also, and this is what she was really emphasizing, what you're pointing out here is that the quantity of credit may start shrinking, right? And uh, as I, I already explained, you know, that really does constrain both economic opportunity and growth. Um, but if you're a zombie company, you know, that's like a one-two punch. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, we, we, that, that really could start getting a lot of the weaker players to start failing in the system here. Um, I like the fact that she, she'd used the word controlled demolition. I like the fact that you used the word controlled burn there, John, because we have often on this program sort of used the forest management analogy, right? That if you, if you don't do selective burning in a forest and clear out the dry tinder, and it just builds and builds and builds over time. Um, yes, you can you, you can try to keep the forest from burning for as long as possible, but once it does catch fire, you're going to have a much bigger conflagration because you have all of that you know years and years of buildup of tinder there, um, and that's the risk that we've been warning about. Where the, the Fed has been intervening for a decade plus, uh, trying to prevent any kind of down cycle. Uh, and that's sort of the equivalent of not letting any controlled burns happen in a, in a forest fire. Um, so now we're at risk of a big conflagration. We've already lost 20% in the stock market, 30% in the bond market so far, or sorry, in the 20% uh, in the S&P, uh, 30% in NASDAQ this year, um, you know, and maybe even have risk of losing even in, in more. And I think the, the Fed could be now saying, you know what, controlled burn is the way. <laughs> so, you know, we, we don't want to do things so drastically that we, we you know, drop the market 30% further overnight. But if we drop it 30% further over the next six months, 12 months, whatever, we can live with that. Um, so reason why I'm sort of reharping on this is I think there's a lot of investors out there who are still, who have been long, have taken their lumps this year, but are still in the mindset of like, okay, this too will pass. You know, we're going to get back to normal um, where the dips get bought and the market goes back to new highs and whatnot. And I'm just saying, open your, your mind, open your perspective to the possibility, Danielle used the word probability, that that may not happen from here. Um, so Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that John covered her pretty well. I always love listening to Danielle DiMartino, who it's really refreshing. She, she's one of the few people, frankly, the only one that I know that has an insider view of the Fed and, you know, has that perspective and has the courage to talk about it now. You know, it takes a lot of courage to talk like that about what, you know, uh, about the experience of the Fed and, and what the, the Fed is likely thinking. We're talking a lot here about controlled burn, controlled demolition. It maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. It's it's all speculation. It's true the Fed has been able to, to to control the market to a great degree these last ten or twelve years. And you say that investors have taken their lumps so far this year. It's true, down twenty percent on the S and P, thirty percent on the Nasdaq. But as wild as it sounds, that only gives back twenty twenty one gains. You know, and what the last year's gains, the vast majority of the gains, and and, and we think that a lot of them are. Uh, temporary gains to uh, most likely because of the fact that valuations are higher than they've ever been at a time where we probably can't drive GDP growth up in this country. Most of the GDP growth that we've seen in, in the recent years, particularly post-COVID, has been because of money printing, um, you know, stimulus, both fiscal and monetary stimulus. So 
Maybe it's a controlled burn, maybe it's a crash. Far be it from us to say it's gonna be one or the other. The key is this, if you're managing your own money or if you're a money manager like we are, it comes down to practicalities and tactics. How are you tactically gonna manage money? We believe that tactically we have to be positioned now for downside surprises because in an overvalued system like this that's starting to show cracks and the first sign, the first signs of breaking down, the, the surprises come to the downside in bear markets. So we think that one likely started. And if you look at the broad market, the Wilshire 5000, it topped in November. And here we are six months later. And we're still wondering, is this the start of something or are we going back to the buy the dip mentality and right to new highs? Nobody knows for sure, but really you should be positioned now for downside surprises. I think that's how I would sum that up. Yeah, a couple of things about that, Mike. Uh, first, to your point about um, you know Danielle's transition from somebody who worked inside the Fed, uh, but now outside and, and lets us see through her former insider eyes. Um, just a reminder, folks, uh, after you watch this video, go watch the bonus video um, where I asked Danielle what inspired her to make that transition. It's a great answer. Uh, that's over at wealthion.com slash DMB. I'll put that URL up right at the end of this video, but that, that's a great segue to, to, to watch after you've watched this one. Um, yeah, Mike, I, so totally agree with you. And we'll talk about this in, in just a moment about you know positioning for further downside action. That said, we do have to be careful uh, that uh, nothing moves in a straight line, uh, and even the worst of uh, you know worst periods for the stock market um, in history were punctuated by just absolute you know face ripping uh, relief rallies. And uh, you know in in the uh, Q and A that we the live Q and A with with the Wealthland audience that we recorded earlier this week, and I had you guys and and Lance Roberts there. Um, we talked a bit about this. In fact, folks, if you haven't watched that, uh, it's a great hour and 20 minute session. Um, I'll put up a link to it right here so you can go watch that too. Um, but John, um, you know, let, let's talk about this for a second because a lot of people have been looking at the current technical level that we're at, uh, expecting some sort of bounce. We talked about how oversold elements of this market were. Uh, especially long bonds. I know you guys took a position in the TLT fund, expecting a bounce there. Um, talk about you know the the need to be you know at least cognizant of these the potential for these short term rallies while still positioning for a longer term downtrend. Yeah, well, the first first thing is to realize that some of the largest one day or two day rallies in in history have come in the context of you know really massive down bear markets. Um, and there are a couple of slides here we can we can repeat that we, we covered during the Q, Q and A you just uh, referenced. You know, so for example, if we look at the going way back to the 1973-74 bear market, and th this one's interesting and has some relevance we think to today because of you know not only were stocks overvalued then, not nearly to the degree they are now, but it was also a regime where where uh, inflation started to become a, a noticeable problem that the Fed finally got off off the uh, the couch so to speak to start to to address. Uh, so you can see this chart here shows the, you know, a, a massive decline from uh, almost 120 in the market. This, these are obviously much smaller numbers back then to about uh, uh, as low as almost 60 uh, by you know, 74. And, and the quote here is from a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. Um, it says in 1974, the Fed kept raising rates even as a recession took hold because it was running to catch up with inflation. The result was a horrible bear market interspersed with soul destroying and that's a really interesting choice of words, uh, temporary rallies. Uh, 
two of which, uh, two of which were 10%, two, 8%, two, 7%, but each one was snuffed out. It took 20 months for the ultimate low to get, uh, get reached. And, and, and that ultimately didn't happen until the Fed kind of started talking about, hey, we're done raising rates. So that, that's one example. And of course, we can look to the um, you know, housing bust of 0708. That, that, uh, we saw rallies of 8%, 12%, 7%, 18%, 24%, all in the context of a approximately almost 60% decline, uh, even more if you, if, you, if you don't include dividends. Um, so so these, the concept of these, these rallies uh, over short numbers of days um, can really suck people into uh, not realizing that we're in a major regime change. And, and this, this uh, housing bust, uh, you know, uh, uh, bear sell-off happened when the Fed was aggressively lowering rates. So it doesn't necessarily mean if the Fed pivots, things are all, you know, well and good. It, when, when, when the um, herd wants to run from risk assets, they will do so. And it takes a lot to stop that trend, you know, that, that stampede in that direction, just like it it's, takes a lot to stop a, a bubble market from going too high. Um, so, so yeah, um, but the, there are technical tools that one can use. Like we often look at um, things like uh, moving averages, um, statistical deviations around trend lines. You know, we just, uh, today or in recent days are bouncing off another two standard deviation sell off on the 50 day moving average. So we're getting a little bit of a bounce here, but these are tools that are, are useful. They're not foolproof by any stretch, um, but they're useful to kind of time and, and at least in a very tactical risk managed way, you know, toe dip into some of these uh, tradable rallies that oftentimes can, can occur during a much longer bear market. All right, yeah, those are great charts. Um, and it's a, it's a really good, caution to people um, to sort of steal yourself emotionally during times like this, because we get whipsawed by our emotions. Um, oh God, stocks are down. I got to sell them. Oh wait, no, they're bouncing back up. I got to jump back in. Right. And I, I just want to remind people of a very common aphorism, which is it's the job of a bear market to take as much money as possible from as many people as possible. And so, you know, those charts that you showed there, John of the seventies, you know, basically showed that, you know, over the long trend, it took a ton of money uh, from a lot of people, right? The, the valuations came down a long way over that time, but it had those big rallies, which basically served to suck in the people on the sidelines, right? The people who, who were on the sidelines, you know, waiting to, to jump back in once things had bottomed said, oh, well, clearly, you know, we hit bottom, it's now up 7%. I'm now gonna deploy my capital and you know, ride the next big wave of appreciation, then bang, the market's down another 25%, right? Um, so again, folks, this is why it's so important, A, to have a plan so that your emotions aren't whipsawing you, and B, you know, to be working with a professional financial advisor and putting together intelligent position sizing and diversification and having reserves uh, allocated uh, that you know are gonna be there no matter what the market's doing in the short term, uh, because it is this, volatile whipsawing that just, you know, is it's it's designed to test your emotions and get you to make the wrong choice at the wrong time. One other thing I want to mention too about both those charts, John, is they show that there is an early mover advantage uh, to just getting out and, and moving to safety. Um, if you had done that at the beginning of both of those markets and just like literally did nothing while the markets cascaded down over the ensuing quarters, uh, you would have fared better than than most people, right? Yeah, Adam, that's, uh, a, that's an important point, Adam. But but you know, we're going to be the first to say, as 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 robust and as as deep as we look at data and the tools we have, 
anybody, including folks in our seats that thinks they're gonna go into this kind of environment with precision and exactness um, is, is absolutely del delusional. Um, there's no way to get this precisely right. Um, there, a great degree of humility is needed from everybody. Uh, that also means uh, being at peace with either getting out too early or even getting out too late in hindsight. You know, just because one doesn't pick the top doesn't mean, first of all, it's impossible for, for everybody in, in total to pick the top. Um, but that's, that shouldn't be the measure of, of, of success that, you know, prudent thinking here and now every day every new day is what the standard should be, not, you know, what the past has changed you to. And this gets to the, you know, the psychological um, shackles that, you know, folks often have uh, and, and many advisors too. It's, it's a very um, psychological, power, psychologically powerful thing. You know, um, the shackles of, oh, I should have sold, you know, two weeks ago when, when things were higher, I'll just wait to get, get there. Well, what if they don't get there? And, and in fact, we've seen in those two charts, they may never get never get there for for many months, if not years. Um, so it's it's really important to kind of you know try to think clearly without any baggage each day. Well, I completely agree. We should have talked about this last week, right? With the sunk cost fallacy, right? Which is sort of what you're talking about there, John. Where your 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 decision making is being driven by which what's happened in the past, and at the end of the day doesn't matter what's happened in the past. You just want to be making the decision from this point going forward, you know, what's the best decision you can make given the, you know, the, the best information you have available to you at the time. Um, which of course, that's again, when our emotions, you know, get in the way and, and force us to make really bad decisions here. And, and, and just getting back to the point I, I wanted to make here, which is, you know, like I said, if somebody had just moved to cash and just gone to safety at the beginning of all that, they would have ended up doing quite well. Now, to John's point, nobody knows if we're going to follow a similar trajectory downwards from here. We don't know with certainty. We think the probability is high enough not, not to be dismissed. I just want to say that that you know the, the downside to playing it safe now is getting a lot lower. All right, that's sort of what I'm trying to drive home here. Um, all right, now, Mike, uh, heading to you, let's talk just real briefly about the and I don't know if I yet want to officially declare it a bounce, um, but in TLT, which is the long U.S. Treasury position that we've been talking about for a number of, of, of weeks, that you guys have taken a relatively recent position in, as has uh, our other advisor, Lance Roberts, um, that has had a good week so far this week. So what's going on there? We have taken a position in long-term bonds, and of course, Always the disclaimer, not a recommendation, but long-term bonds are best represented or easily represented by TLT. They basically got oversold. Um, the bond market anticipated the Fed's moves, priced in very quickly the anticipated, I think, 2.25% uh, rate increases. And we think overshot a little bit, or at least um, got to a level where the prices would stop going down on bonds or the prices would stop going up on yields. The 10-year yield went from um, something like, I want to I say 2% up to about 2.5, 2.6 quickly. We thought it might stop there. It actually shot above three, I think close to 3.1 almost. So it went a little bit further than we thought. And we started to build a position a little bit too soon, actually, in hindsight. And that goes to John's point about you're never going to get this exactly right. You don't have to get it exactly right. You have to have a plan. Uh, we, we, we tend to use hedges. We use covered calls to hedge and to reduce cost basis in the position as we've gone along. 
And we're seeing an anticipated bounce right now in bond prices and a, and a decline in yields. Long-term, uh, for periods of like one year or more, we, we don't really think that long-term bonds are a good place to be. Um, there's a whole lot of other concerns that we're concerned about long-term. I guess we'll evaluate what it looks like when we get there. But our thinking on this position is more of a, a short-term position, maybe something less than 12 months. So bonds are starting to bounce and, um, and, and we just continue to work the position. All right. And let me just ask again, because we've talked about this position a fair amount over the past several weeks, what will, what will determine your decision to, to exit the position? Is there a particular price target you're looking for? Is it a set of macro conditions? Um, whether you're selling at a gain or at a loss, kind of what goes into your calculus to say, okay, you know what? We, we entered this as a short-term position. It's time to exit because either we got the return we wanted, we're afraid it's just not gonna you know, work out the way that we wanted um, or whatever. We try really hard not to worry about a gain or a loss because the market ultimately doesn't care. We try to think about what's the right choice now, today. And there's sometimes where we exit positions at a loss or that we hedge it to a point that even if they get uh, called away in the instance of a, of a covered call, we exit at a loss. It doesn't really matter to us. Overall, we want more gains than losses, and that's what makes an account and a portfolio go up over time. But any one position doesn't really matter whether it's a gain or a loss. In the terms of TLT, long-term bonds, we're, it's really more technical reasons than anything. I and mean, we, we could probably talk a lot about um, you know, long-term th thematic items with bonds and monetary policy and all that. But this is really, truly just a technical trade. Got extended, um, standard deviation uh, was extreme on one side, got to a support level that we thought was gonna hold. It actually didn't hold, it shot through there a little bit. And that's what, um, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about working the position maybe even adding a little bit if you still like the idea and then resetting the hedges. At this point, TLT is around, I'm not looking at my screen, but it's 118, 119, maybe close to 120 even. That 130 to 135 area that, that it broke down out of is, is probably you know, an area that we would, if it got there, that we would consider uh, potentially taking the position off. We might even take it off sooner. I'm not sure. We presently have call options uh, against the position in the high 120s. If we were to run quickly, we might very well let it get called away for a profit there. But we're not looking for a lot out of that position. That being said, if conditions change, if the charts change, if something changes in the macroeconomic environment, we could uh, consider changing our mindset on that position to a longer term position. But generally we'll let the position go clear the deck, so to speak, come back and reevaluate the position again. And if we change our mind and it turns into a long-term thesis force, we might just put it on again down the road. But to us, it's um, you know one trade, one position at a time type thinking. All right, great. No, that's helpful. I just wanted you to walk through the process. You did a good job there. And, and just to put some words in your mouth, which feel free to correct, but like you bought it because you thought it was oversold. Um, if it if the technicals show at some point, wherever the price is, that it's no longer an oversold territory, that may be a reason where you would say, okay, that's why we bought in. That's no longer the case anymore. We're getting out regardless of where the price is. And what I liked about your answer, Mike, is it, it also underscored the like, we look at, we wake up every day and we look at the portfolio and what we have. And we ask ourselves, regardless of how it's performed until now, 
do we think it's the right thing to be holding going forward? I see you nodding as I'm saying. That's that. absolutely correct. We will sell at a loss. No qualms about it. If, um, if, if conditions change or reasons change or it's not doing what we thought it would, we'll exit it and we'll look at it fresh again. And maybe we find something else that looks better at the moment. We don't want to get too stuck in, in, in one thing. We, we do have some long-term thematic beliefs. It's true. We talk a lot about gold mining stocks and gold and silver here with you on this program. We treat those a little bit differently. They're, they're longer-term thematic beliefs, and we even hedge them differently. Um, so with those, we're more likely to buy put protection, which puts a floor in the position. If I could just say a couple words about gold mining stocks, we've got sure. a position in, in them. That's pretty well known to, to people that have watched this. For the, for the new folks, we, we have gold mining stocks. We believe that they're undervalued here. Um, and if I could talk about GDX as a proxy for the gold mining sector, it had a nice run up to the low 40s, and then it had an unexpected drop back to where it is now in the low 30s. When it was up there around 40 or so, we reset our hedges. We sold calls on part of the position to bring in some premium, and then we, put, we bought puts down in the low 30s, uh, 33 to be exact, is the ones that we have right now, um, which are slightly in the money. There's literally no downside risk because of the put protection we have on board for that position between now and expiration um, in June in this example. So with that position, from a technical perspective, it gave some good reasons that it's, it's broken down and maybe a short-term trader would exit, but it's more of a thematic longer-term position for us. And we're happy to have the, the floor or the put protection in that case, but it's a totally different investment idea than the TLT one that we just talked about. All right, thanks for going through that, Mike. Um, all right, John, I'm gonna come back to you and let you have the last word here. Um, Danielle and I talked a fair amount about both the housing and the job markets as well. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to paint a picture of, of gloom here, but I think we can say, I think with much more confidence than we could say right at the beginning of the year, that, you know, there's a lot of, of storm clouds on the horizon that suggest that financial asset prices could head materially lower. I think you can say with even more confidence, it looks like uh, the job market and the housing markets are going to cool going forward from here. And I'm, I'm using cool uh generously um I, I i think we could see larger corrections in those markets than most people are expecting right now so um i i just gotta believe that that people whether consciously or, or, or subconsciously are beginning to feel a, gr a, a growing sense of anxiety just around sort of the financial macro conditions going forward for the individual person um wow i might i might not be making as much money or losing more money in the stock markets uh, i'm a little bit worried about my job and uh, you know, if I own a house and if it's a big part of my net worth, well, that thing might be going down too. Um, you guys talk to people all day, every day. Um, any context you can offer in terms of you know the questions people are calling in with right now, but also just any general counsel you have you could offer to people who are are feeling that pit maybe begin to tighten in their stomach. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think it, you know, simplifying what's going on here with the, with the Fed raising interest rates, it's really finally we're starting to see the Fed step back and, and the forces of supply and demand starting to show uh, some function, right? Um, when interest rates were driven artificially low, all manner of things became um, cheap, so to speak, or, or attractive. You know, high price stocks were attractive, uh, junk bonds were attractive, overpriced real estate was attractive because there was no alternative. And now that interest rates are starting to ripple through and, and 
you know, the supply demand is starting to force uh, force their its function. You know, people are starting to see that they're they're starting to see. Um, you know, you know, we talked. You talked about companies. You know, there's there's two jobs open for every candidate looking for jobs. That is a problem. The Fed has uh, made, made mention of it. It means there's an imbalance between supply and demand of of the labor of available labor and and the jobs quote unquote needing to be filled. And that's going to correct itself one way or the other. And it looks like companies are starting to correct it on the the the, uh, the demand side for jobs. Um, you know, starting to you know put a hiring freezes in place. Um, start to become a little less liberal on work from home situations. Uh, talking about um, you know, and, and I you know it's it's kind of um, double speak the way it's phrased. But in corporate co- earnings calls, they talk about cost control, which. Oftentimes, it means we're going to start laying off people, uh, or at least uh, lay off the least productive parts of our, or, or, or cutting spending on advertising, things like that. And that has a ripple effect. This whole thing that we've seen the last 10, 12 years or more uh, has been an engineered wealth effect, trying to get people to think and feel more confident about spending and consuming and things like that. Now that they're trying to reverse that effect, it works in, in, in much the, op- the same way. So it's only natural that you know, folks, including our clients and prospective clients are, are feeling a, a little bit of a, even if they don't quite understand uh, exactly why they feel that way, they, they don't see directly their job being at risk. They, they have this sense of a broader um, things not being quite right. And there's good reason to feel that way for the reasons we just talked about. So yeah, I mean, um, being a little less, um, I don't like to use the word less optimistic, because there's lots of reasons to, for people to be happy about being alive, right? There, there always is. Um, but in so far as chasing, tripping over, you know, another 10 buyers on that vacation home that, you know, you know, is overpriced, but you just feel so confident that that you want to go after it. Those are the kinds of things that people are starting to, to feel less comfortable about. And there's other clients that are rightfully concerned. They're, they're, their cost of living has gone up. They have, a, they have a, a fixed income. They have a hard time putting gas in their car or food on their table and thinking about how am I going to sustain my my lifestyle for the next 30 40 years if i'm retired and not making an income these are things we talk about every day and and our answer to that is a lot of things you can't control you can control a you know your discretionary spending or at least be mindful of it and b how you position your hard-earned assets one of the worst ways to uh unseat a good situation is to take undue risk in a hyper overvalued market it's easy Figuratively, you know, uh, mechanically, to take defense, to 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 step out of harm's way, it's very hard emotionally, and that's that's where we come into play. We can we can help folks take a step back and say, you know what, I'm okay. I can afford not to swing for the fences here in a hyper overvalued market. If if I do that and I strike out, I may I may put in jeopardy my retirement. But if I miss out on a couple, two, three, five, even ten percent late stage gains, that's not a that's not a game over for me. It's, it's, oh, well, it would have been nice to have that, but at least I'm going to be okay, right? So that's really what we talk about all day long with our clients. All right. Yeah, I think you're making a really good uh, argument for, there's a quote that John Michael Greer used to use, um, and this was on a much more sort of societal level, but he, would, he was pretty pessimistic about where society was headed. And he said, my advice is collapse now and avoid the rush, right? And <laughs> what I mean by that for here, it's sort of like, you know, hey, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to go through like a, you know, a personal audit right now and to just find out where you can kind of tighten things down, batten down the hatches in advance of the storm arriving, 
right? And if it doesn't arrive, great. You can, you can open things back up later. But there's lots of steps that you can take now to make yourself less vulnerable to some of these, you know, potential shoes to drop in the housing market and the financial markets and the job markets and whatnot. And, and I guess in your case, John, you know, it would say, look, you know, just revisit your financial plan right now. And if you don't have one, go make one, right? So, um, you know, folks listening, if you, if you don't have one, take this as a nudge from the universe to go develop one. Uh, if you can do it from scratch, great. Uh, I think there's some free software out there. Uh, I think you're much better served working with a professional financial advisor. Um, and if you have a good one, stick with them. Um, but if you don't, uh, consider talking to Wealthion's recommended financial advisors like Mike and John. Uh, if you want to learn how to do that, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. It uh, doesn't cost you anything. Don't have to work with any. There's no commitment to work with anybody. It's just to literally help you get the ball moving in your life in this way. Um, also, as I mentioned earlier, too, if you are employed and you are an employee, meaning you get a paycheck from somebody, uh, I would highly recommend you go read our free layoff survival guide at wealthion.com slash layoffs. Total free resource. Um, I just think it's really useful sort of pre-preparation uh, knowledge to, to you know, read through and ask yourself, you know, do I see any of these warning signs in my career? And are there things, you know, can I take any of those steps now uh, that just in case my company starts tightening its budgets, announcing layoffs, et cetera, uh, I've put myself in the best position possible for that uh, potential. Um, all right, um, let's see here. So folks, um, uh, if you have enjoyed uh, this interview with Danielle, would love to see her back on the program and other great guests like her, please support this program by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below. Um, I gotta say too, folks, uh, after this video ends, just go watch wealthion.com slash DMB for the quick, I think it's like five minutes, uh, but the quick backstory for how Danielle went from working inside the Fed to now being one of the ind independent and more critical voices uh, of the Fed on the outside. Uh, it's really pretty fascinating. John and Mike, thanks so much for joining me again this week. Whatever happens next from here, we'll be tracking it together on this program next week. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thanks, Adam. It was fun as usual. See you soon. Thank you again, Adam. See you soon. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. 
If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching. (music) 